Hello and welcome to Displaced on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumathy. And if you are listening to this show, that's because you care about the causes of conflict and how to respond to them. Ravi and I work at the International Rescue Committee where we design, test, and scale new solutions for humanitarian response. And right now we're doing something a little different on this podcast and interviewing our family members. Last week I talked to my sister Glenna Gordon who is a badass documentary photographer who captures images of crises and those affected by crises. And this week we're switching it up and going to the Gur Murthy side of the family arc. But before we get into that, I just want to say up top that this is our last episode of season two. So thank you so much for listening. You can always get in touch with us on Twitter at at Grant M. Gordon and at Argora Murthy and email us to at displaced at rescue.org. And while you are missing us next week going through just a little bit of withdrawal because we don't have an episode, do consider visiting our page and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts anyways. We'd really appreciate it. <laughs> Today I'm talking to my dad, Christian Guru Murthy, and we're going to be talking about a, a journey that he began when he was nine-year-old living in Burma in 1942. And it was a 1,500-mile journey during the Second World War when he was fleeing the Japanese invasion of Burma, going back to his ancestral home in India. And it was a really dramatic situation because he tried to get on the ferries to go over to uh, India, but the, the last ferries were all shut and they couldn't get on. And they ended up having to go for, through a very treacherous land route. And that land route was 1,500-mile journey and it took over 42 days. And this exodus which affected hundreds of thousands of people, is very undercovered. There's very few published accounts of that exodus, and those that are are mainly by Europeans. We get into the details of the journey, but it might just be useful to get a sense of the scope of it. The first step of it, from a place called Tongu, which is where Dad started off, was by car, and he took that to the foot of the Irrawaddy River. He then gets on a boat. It was a flat-bottom boat without an engine that went up 150 miles, took about 10 days, and he gets to the foothills of the mountains, the Naga Hills. And that journey is the one that was really, really arduous. It was about 100 miles um, to get from the Irrawaddy River to the the foothills of the Naga Hills, and then another um, 60 miles to climb over the mountains, and it took a week to do that. So after Dad arrives in India, the journey doesn't end. He ends up having to go to Calcutta and then to Madras. And now I'm going to talk to him about that journey, which happened over 75 years ago. Um, And we're going to be discussing not only that, but also his life afterwards. Um, Dad is now 85 years old, and he's still working full time in the National Health Service. And we're going to be reflecting on what it takes to succeed if you're a displaced person. So here is the conversation with Dad, or Christian Gurumurthy, as I suppose I should introduce him as. So, Dad, thank you for coming on this podcast. I know you've listened to a few shows. Um, so what we're going to try and do today is just talk about um, your life. Um, it, it's funny for me even just talking to you about this because it's a story that I've heard told many times by you, but always the details feel sometimes fuzzy. And part of that is because we're going to be talking about things that happened quite a long time ago. 1942, during the Second World War, when you were a nine-year-old boy and you were leaving Burma on a very long journey over back towards the ancestral home in Madras. And it's what's interesting for me is that it's a very... Um, untold story generally about the Second World War. I did a history degree, and despite that, and despite learning about the Second World War many, many times at secondary school, I never once heard about the Japanese um, invasion of Burma and the fact that the British basically got vanquished and and lost very badly. And um, it was only 
actually relatively recently that I discovered that over 200,000 people uh, left Burma during the Second World War when the Japanese uh, invaded. So, I mean, can you just start off by saying what on earth, what were you doing in Burma in the first place? Because you're not, your family isn't Burmese. My grandfather migrated to Burma and my father was born in Mandalay and uh, I was born in a place called Mulmain, also in Burma. And uh, we had a, I mean, my father worked for the Burmese railways like most Indians did. And we had a reasonably comfortable life. And uh, most unexpectedly, the war occurred. And what is surprising was Burma and indeed the British government was least prepared for the invasion by the Japanese into Burma. Can you, can you remember the final moments you were in, um, in, in Rangoon? Yes, I do, because we went to Rangoon to find a place in the boat to leave for India. So we got the tickets, but day after day, we used to reach the harbour only to be turned out because priority was given to the what are called Eurasians. And we, and we were... Those are, those are people who had um, mixed heritage. Mixed so, heritage, yeah. yes. And also, we were a large family because my, we were, I had six siblings and we had my grandmother with us. So there was only 10 of us. So to find a place in a boat for 10 as opposed to two or three, it was a bit difficult. You said grandmother there, but it's actually a really interesting story in that it's actually your, well, my mum, your wife's <laughs> mother who Indeed, was with yes. you. Your, your, yes. like, um, and h- how come she was... How come she was part of that mix? Because uh, it goes back to the fact that uh, my grandfather, that is my father's father, and uh, your grandmother's father were brothers. So, we, I mean, I married my second cousin, as it were, which is a very common thing to do in South India particularly. So the first part of the journey was to the, the border of um, border of India in the north. Yes. You were travelling from um, sort of three quarters of the way down the country, is that right? Yes. Uh, where, you, where you came from. Um, that first part of the journey, was that on, on boat and, and car or, or how much did you walk of that? Well, we were given a car, we travelled about 100 miles to the meeting point. And there it was near the river. Called Irrawaddy River. So, Irrawaddy River runs along the north south of Burma. So we took a boat and we travelled nearly for ten days along the river. And uh, I mean that was looking back. We travelled all day long, and we stopped in the evening. And the place where we stopped, we were given the rations, and there were plants and fruits. Yeah, you were it, you were still you were nine years old. Yes, this time. Yeah. So. After you get to the end of that bit of the uh, the journey on the Irrawaddy River by boat, yes. um, you've still got some way to get to the it border. Is, yes, we had to we got to a place called Tamu. So there we waited and we travelled as a group, in fact. So our whole journey took nearly 42 days, but the journey in time itself was less than half. So the waiting time took more. At every camp play, we had to wait for the next journey to begin, either for the transport to arrange or to get sufficient people to form a group. And why did you have to travel as a, a group of 5,000 altogether? I think the safety in numbers, basically, because especially over the hills, there were uh, animals, wild animals, tigers, and uh, there was a menace of the Burmese python, pythons, Huge snakes, they just swallowed you up. And of course, some of the Naga tribes 
were not particularly friendly either. So, uh, as a, and also it was easier for the organizers to supply us with both essentials like rice, dal, and salt. And the organizers were they were they army people? Yeah, the army, yeah, the British army. Yeah. And so, so this journey, this bit of the journey, was about what hundred hundred miles or so over the the Naga Hills. Yeah, that took a week almost because we used to walk from morning to evening, and that was an ordeal which I still remember. In fact, and uh, I was nine, and uh, by the time walked a few miles. I used to be very tired. I couldn't lift my foot sometimes, hit the stones. And uh, I remember asking my dad, look, how, how long we had to go? And he would just point out at a lamp, uh, at a light, at a far distance and say, look, once we reach there, we arrived. But that light, which happened to be a star, was receding <laughs> forever. So we never reached. But it kind of pacified us, maybe. It gave us some feeling that maybe we're going to reach the end soon. I love the fact that that the, 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 the usual story you tell your children that it's just around the corner is still <laughs> used yes, then. Yes, My father said to several children, I don't know how he felt, how he managed. The ordeal must have been quite heavy on him. See? But he somehow seemed to have kept his weights about and uh, very practical and made sure that all of us were safe. Almost unique family in the sense, 10 of us arrived in India None of them dying because almost every family lost a member on the way out, especially on the hills. And can you remember seeing people? Absolutely, died, dead bodies by the side, people dying, and people just abandoning them. Some of them were wearing gold and silver jewelry, but those didn't matter at the time. They just left and walked on. But how did? Because um, there were ten of you. How did your? How did mum's mum? Sorry, mum's grandma get on, because she must have been pretty yes, old. Was, and uh, oh, and you, had, you had younger brothers as well who were much younger yeah. than you. See, the three younger ones, see, we had what I call the Manipuri men who offered the services to carry the uh, young ones. Some of them carried even the older people. As well, and those were just low people who lived there? Low, yeah, local people, very sturdy, strong men. And uh, they, for a fee, they did that. So that's carried us through the mountains, yes. And that was for your younger... Yeah, with the three siblings, yes. My grandma, of course, struggled. She walked hard because... uh, But she was quite a sturdy. Even though she was old, she was not particularly frail at the time. uh, So can you remember getting to... Because where did you arrive in India after that walk through the hills? After the end of the Rakan Hills, we reached a place called Impal, which is the capital of Manipur. And that site still lingers in my mind, actually. The site as it came down the hill to see the sunshine. And the houses in Impal were all white buildings. And that was a sight to see, in fact. And at Impal, again, we congregated, and they'd arranged buses to travel, take us to, to Assam, which is about nearly 150 miles. And that was a very, very, while walking was difficult, the bus journey was felt worse because the journey through the mountains, and we all felt sick with that. Uh, but we reached a place called Dimapur, which is the end of Assam, British in the Indian Railways. So that's the very outer eastern edge of the of the Assam of the, state. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That is where the railways end or begin. I think it depends. And was that was there a sense then of relief that you'd actually uh, made it, or was the yes, w- indeed, yes. We have, you know, we have, now we realize that we don't have to walk anymore; that we'll be you know taken by train, and uh, from Dimapur, which is Assam. 
we came to Calcutta. Then we had to leave Calcutta to come to Madras. That is another, almost a thousand miles. And that took more than four days of slow journey. Right. Because they're stopping at almost every major town on the way. And you were going back to Madras because that was the ancestral home? That, that's your... where our family came from. That is, my grandparents, they all supposed to come from a village near Madras. And the funny thing is, neither my grandfather or my father had ever been to the village. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to talk a little bit later about um, what happened when you'd arrived in your home, your new home, Madras, um, and how you made the most of that. So we're back with my dad. I'm um, displaced. Dad, um, when you arrived in Madras, which was now home, um, in some in some ways it, it wasn't particularly plain sailing then because your father uh, enrolled in the army because yeah. that was the only way in which he could uh, make money. This was 1942. And pretty quickly, um, you know, in the next couple of years, you lost both your mother and your father and you were, you were orphaned. Can you just... Just talk us through what happened when you arrived in Madras and, and how that next leg unfolded. Uh, the very day when we arrived in Madras, my grandmother fell unconscious and unfortunately she passed away the following day. So that was a tragedy which started off, especially for my mother-in-law. You see? So she was the only daughter and she was waiting for her mother to arrive and all she could see was her dead body. When we arrived in Madras, we were all shattered, we were exhausted, and we had acquired malaria. And those days, malaria had no specific treatment. But it so happened that a tablet called Polutrin was just discovered and released. And that's what saved all of us. So that was a, a, a tablet? Tablet, yes. So the house where we arrived was like a hospital bed. We all laid down, see. So it took almost weeks for us to get better from malaria in the first instance. But then my father faced with the problem was, what's he going to do with his family? Where is he going to live and how is he going to make a living? So he looked around and the only thing, ironically, was to join the army. So he joined the army, enlisted in the army. So he was a non-combatant but it's on the administrative side of the army, you see. Which meant he had to leave Madras and go back to Chittagong, to the place all where he came from. Where, where is that? Chittagong is the eastern border of India, or the near the Burmese border. In fact, very near where the Japanese were pushing into. Because that's where the 8th Army under Mountbatten was stationed. So he left in 1942 itself? Yes, 1942 itself. And he used to visit us once a year on on holidays. So my mother, meanwhile, had to, we found a place to live and she looked after us. It so happened that in 45, my mother took a short illness and she suddenly died. And I was 11, I think, but I wasn't, children are not that aware of those days. We didn't know what was going on. I still do not know what was the specific cause of her death, but with some illness and she died suddenly. So we were without her mother. So our uncle again took all of us, seven of us, under his wing because 
under the joint family system of South India, it is his duty to look after us. Then my father was in Chittagong, again caught malaria very badly. So he was discharged in medical grounds from the army in 45. And he was severely ill in the hospital at the time when my mother died. He wasn't even aware that my mother had died. Then when he was discharged, then he came to Madras. And of course, when he came back, he was, uh, I mean, I, was, I can still remember him. He was a very uh, strong-minded person. And to see him shattered uh, was uh, something which, uh, which I had not forgotten, in fact. To see his mother, his, his wife died and have his seven children on his hands again, once again. See. So he he then passed away quite quickly. Yeah, so he quickly got a job in the ordnance factory very near Madras. And he also, within two weeks of joining the new place, he died suddenly there. See. And uh, my view is that he had a recrudescence of the malaria, see, a severe malaria, and, and malaria can be fatal. And uh, that's what must happen to him. See. So you were now 11 or 12? I was 11, yes. 11 years old. And 49, 45. And um, what's interesting then about the next yeah. <laughs> decades of your life is that you were the, the one member of the family who ended up going to university. Yeah. You were very successful, became a doctor, emigrated. You're now... You've now worked in the National Health Service in the UK for over 50 years. You're still working at the age of 85. And um, the question that we always sometimes ask ourselves in the family is, you know, how did you end up being uh, successful? How did you overcome the odds? Because at that point, as an 11-year-old, 11-year-old who was orphaned, um, living, uh, I think, in one room at one point with all your family, um, what was it that helped you overcome the odds and, and be successful? And... What's your, what's your what's your reflection on on the things that 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 prove most important? I think the single most important influence on our whole family, our brothers, is my eldest brother. He was fifteen when my parents died. He he had hopes of going to university, but that was shattered. So he went to work. At the age of eighteen, the legal age, he took charge of all his siblings. He gathered all of us, so we hired this uh, small uh, one-room flat. And uh, But he worked very hard. He doubled his income by working both day and night to look after us because education was not free, even in, in India. But uh, he was very, very single-minded that we all should be educated. And he was a great uh, guiding force for the entire family, in fact. He made sure that all of us went to school. He was a very light-touch guardian. He never questioned what we did, but as long as... But we found that he motivated us, motivated us to read. He, had, he was very interested in English literature himself. We often used to discuss about Macaulay, Burke, Shakespeare, and Oscar Wilde. And that, of course, gave us an impetus that to study, to learn... So we did very well at school on that basis. And uh, my elder brother was also hoping to go to university. But because I was intent to do medicine, he had to give up his ambition. So he went to work. 
And so, and that supported me to enter the medical college. I was pretty single-minded about that. They all were very proud that I got to university, that I became a doctor. So I, I did a TED talk, I think, last year, um, which was trying to think about what do refugees need yes. when they are displaced. And um, although it tried to draw on some evidence, it also used your story in a way, because yes. I think you said that the things that really made the difference were, firstly, your extended family, but also yes. other friends that you had. Yeah. You managed to fall into company with people yeah. who actually extended your horizons yeah. and provided you with opportunities. So one is that sense of network, yeah. which often when refugees arrive in a given place, they don't have. And 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 uh, resettlement agencies often don't really focus on helping them connect into different networks. The second thing was um, education, where you actually went to, I think, the the best school in, in, in Madras, and that really was a huge help. And the third thing was a little bit of money that your family was able to earn, yeah, yeah. which they then used for your education. And again, the reason why that's interesting is that often we are quite paternalistic with the way we treat refugees. We, we provide them with food and shelter and stuff. We don't tend to prioritise education. We don't prioritise social networks. So I think it is quite interesting and instructive about why and how you manage to um, do well, because it's actually quite at odds with how we tend to um, uh, provide services to refugees. In a way, see... I always feel that, I think I mentioned this, life is full of opportunities. The trick of the genius is to find the opportunity in every situation. We are not pessimistic about our experience. We never dwelt on the fact that we had to come away from Burma. We're always uh, happy together, discussing, always uh, literature, politics, and that sort of thing. We never got into the family squabbles, any of those ideas. And we were a close-knit Brothers, in fact, is supporting each other, intellectually, that is. And also, the sense of freedom. My elder brother was only four years older than me. and uh, But yet, he had the foresight not to be heavy-handed or strong-minded. He gave us infinite freedom to make our own mistakes. I mean, for instance, I mean, by the John University Medical College, one of the fashionable things all medical students do is start smoking which I, I could hardly afford a cigarette, but still I t- took to smoking. And uh, I remember once coming home and uh, some of the little boys had seen me smoking outside and went and sneaked to my elder brother, look, uh, we saw him smoking, you see. My brother said, if I asked him, he'd start smoking in front of me. <laughs> At least he doesn't smoke in front of me now, you see. Because in India, smoking and drinking in front of elders is not the done thing, you see. So, I mean, that was this practical wisdom, sensible and stuff. Otherwise, the, the emphasis was always on education. There's nothing else. You must study well, and good marks, get to university, and that will see its way. So, uh, we're going to fast forward about 60 years. Yeah. <laughs> and if you, if you take your situation now, you're, you're, you've lived in the UK um, for since 1962. So, indeed, yes. Um, and... I think there are sort of a few things to explore here. One is the fact that your memory of this whole period is somewhat blurred sometimes, yeah. you've said, and, yeah. and it's partly because you never really dwelt on it yeah. and you said that yeah. you never really talked to your brothers that much. Um, why, do you, why do you think that is? I can't answer that because uh, I don't know why I didn't do some things. <laughs> it was not a conscious decision. It's just that we did not ever, uh, it was a fact of life. 
it happened. There's nothing that we can do about it. My favorite saying, my brother always said was, what can't be cured must be endured, you'll say. There is a sort of um, balance to be struck between recognizing your own past and yeah. remembering it, um, but also being able to move on and not dwell on it too much. Because at the time when you're moving on, you don't want to think of the past. You're more concentrated in the here and now. And that's what we did. We, you know, I came to UK and on my own, I knew no anybody here. So it was a quite a struggle. It's another struggle again to, to establish myself and to progress. So we are not going to think of something which happened years ago, you see, because it is of no great use. And uh, it's more important to worry about what is the present. And, uh, and that's what kept us going, you see. And, uh, of course, the NHS... After the initial struggle, I had no problems afterwards. For 50 years, I had an excellent uh, career in NHS, you see? a very safe, assured career, in fact. I did reasonably well there. You know, you, you very nearly came, well, you're recording this in New York, and you very nearly came to America, and yeah. probably one of the reasons why you didn't was because um, you married uh, my mum when she was 17 years old, and, and part of the um, condition that her dad put on you marrying yeah. her was to actually, I think, come to the UK rather than the US. Uh, and this was a love marriage across castes, yeah. so it was very controversial yeah. at the time. Um so, but you've always slightly regretted, I think, not being in America. And you come to America and see me, and I have very rose-tinted spectacles about how wonderful America is. And um, but you, you still feel that very strongly, don't you? It, it is this gust of opportunity in life, actually. And America is the maximum opportunity I feel. I may be wrong, but it seems it's a vast country, a great potential. And uh, I've been to Ellis Island, and I saw the. I mean, this is what was writ large on all those faces. They left all the privations and problems at home, came to the land of free. But I think it's le- I think it's less about opportunity because you yeah. can have opportunity anywhere, and you could very well argue that you've got more opportunity in the UK, um, particularly if you ha- don't have much money from uh, through their education system. But I think the more interesting point you sometimes make is about feeling at ease and feeling part of a, a place. And you've always said that despite um, doing really really well in the UK. A bit of you doesn't really feel at home in it. Yeah. You've always felt a little bit like um, an immigrant, and yet yeah. you always said that people you knew who went to America um, didn't feel that. They felt at home. And, and do you still feel that that is a distinction? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is not really unique to me. There are many, many first-generation immigrants in the, in the UK who lived there 50 years. They still feel immigrants than part of the country, even though they're UK citizens. You do not have the sense of citizenship. Whereas, see, all my my brothers' children, it so happened, they're all living in the UK, in the, in the United States. So I can do a sort of a, a nieces and nephews trip through the United States, right from Detroit to California. They're all places, various places. And they're all, as far as I can see, doing well. And what strikes me about them is a great confidence and sense of assurance that they have about themselves. And that, I feel, comes from this place. But the, the, the legacy of... Um, I mean, w- the other thing I think is interesting is you've never been back to Burma. 
and no. you don't really have much curiosity to go back to Burma. Not at all, no. Um, I, I left the country, that's it. <laughs> and you also, although you said that you don't necessarily feel at ease in the UK, yeah. you don't particularly feel at ease in India either. You yeah. like it, you have a deep ambivalence towards it in terms of you loving the music and the culture, but you also don't necessarily like to stay there too long. You see, I think the two things there. One is when I was a, a student, when I was 13, 14, one of the great essays I used to read is Oliver Goldsmith. He was he signed himself the citizen of the world. The concept of citizen of the world was to me was very appealing. I have no uh, national allegiance as such, but also maybe I'm a kind of a gypsy. See, after gypsies came from India, mm-hmm. so maybe the bit of a gypsy there is in me that I like to keep moving on. So there's partly that as well, you see. So, and I think the other thing that's um, probably still a, a legacy of the whole trip, yes. uh, the trip, the journey, was um, a deep work ethic and, and a sense of insecurity. So you're still working as a consultant radiologist yes. at 85, yes. nearly, um, and um, you have an incredible work ethic that um, all of us admire. How Do you think that's because of that sense of insecurity you felt growing up being an orphan? I'm not sure it was a work ethic or a desire for money, you see. <laughs> I like earning money and, uh, as you know, mom likes spending money, so it'd be uh, well suited there. <laughs> no, it's, you know, it is, it is also, it's I, more I, than that. You, you feel, you, you've always felt insecure indeed, about, yes, about yes, yes, absolutely. materially insecure. The day, as long as I'm working, I feel secure and I feel happy. In fact, The day I don't work, I don't feel happy, you see, which is very true. So, I mean, even, uh, I, as you know, I'm still working, Virtually seven days a week in UK because it so happened the the NHS allows you to work as long as you fit in well and complementous uh, that you can carry on working and as a radiologist which is very much a sedentary job it's easy to do that I couldn't do it if I was a surgeon or a obstetrician. We were at the uh, comedy comedy cellar last night, and there was a joke by a comedian about how these days doctors are really young. They look like Doogie Howser and they're 12-year-olds. And I was looking at you thinking, well, it's better better than a 12-year-old than an 85-year-old. So, Dad, thank you very much for being on Displaced. Um, I don't know whether there's anything else we want to say. Well, uh, you you mentioned about memory, see. Whatever I say, I must make it very clear, it's not, I can't swear it's absolutely true. Because it's colored by recollection, colored by uh, modification of experience. You see? So much of it is true. Basically, substance is very true, in fact. But uh, on the whole, when I look back on my life, if I, I'm a, you know, if I regret anything, the only thing I regret is not making use of all the opportunities that life has given me which I could have done better. For instance, I would allow to be in a very successful academic radiologist instead of being a jobbing radiologist. And that is purely because of my own failure, for no other reason. I didn't apply myself to it. But, uh, but that's where life goes. That was Ravi's dad. Ravi, how'd you feel about talking with your dad? <laughs> It was lovely talking to Dad, and um, there's something really interesting about doing this in this artificial environment because you uh, you actually are forced to crystallize things in a different way, and 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 also you explore things that you didn't expect to explore, which was which was great. 
I love the ending of that interview because it, it sort of made me laugh that dad thinks of himself as a failure despite uh, growing up being orphaned and managing to become a successful consultant radiologist and, and bringing up a very successful uh, family. Um, and it just, just reminds me about how driven dad has always been and that insecurity that he faced in childhood, that adversity has been actually an incredible positive thing in many ways, given his work ethic and, and drive. Um, and I've had a long conversation with dad over many, many years about poverty and injustice. And dad used to t- say to me in the UK, there is no such thing as poverty because people don't realise how bad it could be given his own upbringing. And this was, a, as you can imagine, a long argument. And But what, what it does bring home to me, my dad's story, is that things that are not tangible, like having aspirations, having drive, having social networks, role models, having a disposition that's um, very uh, gritty and persistent. All of those things are so key to overcoming the odds. And yet in many of our programming, we don't really um, think seriously about that cultural capital, that social capital and how we we build it. The other thing that um, I think about a bit about is about memory. And there's this lovely quote from uh, Viet Tan Nguyen, who we interviewed last season, mm-hmm. about memory. And he said that, I do not remember many things, and for all those things I do not remember, I'm grateful. And I think there's something quite interesting about the extent to which you leave behind your past in order to not be trapped by it, um, but also paying enough um heed to it to actually cherish those thoughts and and appreciate it properly. And I think it's something that I wrestle with, um, particularly as I bring up children and try and give them a sense of where they've come from. It makes me think that a lot of this season and a lot of the podcast in general are dealing with kind of concrete operational tactical issues of what happens during crises, how you respond to them, how to think about the politics of these times. Um, But a major large theme is what are the narratives that we construct around them? What are the stories we tell ourselves? What are the stories that are told about them? A lot of what I think we're doing on this podcast sometimes may come off as – looking under the hood of, you know, bureaucracies and politics in humanitarian response and uh, and kind of trying to pierce through it. But a lot of that also is taking more seriously what the narratives around humanitarian response and humanitarian politics are and diving into depth in them in a way that I think often doesn't happen. I feel like the lesson of this is that everybody should have, like, structured interviews with their family members. <laughs> yeah, I agree. This is the last episode of season two, but just because it's the last episode of this season doesn't mean we want to stop the conversation or not hear from you anymore. Feel free to check out our old episodes and other seasons at www.rescue.org displaced or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we do want to hear from you. Uh, feel free to tweet at us. I'm at Grant M. Gordon. And <laughs> what is his Twitter handle? At Argo Murphy. A big thanks to lots of people at Vox Media. Displaced is produced by Megan Cunane. Our engineer is Jelani Carter with extra help from Jarrett Floyd. And it would be cruel not to take the piss out of Golder Arthur one last time. Grant, do your worst. That was the silent treatment, Golder. That was what that was. <laughs> and Ashat Kurwa is our executive producer of audio. Um, a huge thank you to Women Audio Mission here in San Francisco, where I am taping at the International Rescue Committee. Anna Fuhrer is our researcher. And a special thanks to Alex Bandea, Natalie Sarkowski, and Ben Moskowitz. Thank you for listening this season, and we will see you down the road. Thank you for listening, everybody. See you soon. 